the uh, the father of sort of what's considered modern history was a Greek named Herodotus, and in the fifth century B.C. He recorded things he saw and heard. He traveled the world, the ancient world at the time, and wrote some of those things down. He also recorded stories he'd heard. Now, not everything Herodotus wrote is considered to be accurate or true today, but he was the first, you know, sort of in the age when myths and fables were still the norm, he was the first to try and write down history, typically the way we do today. One of the accounts he recorded was when Cyrus the Great, the Persian king of the Medo-Persian Empire, took the city of Babylon. We know about Babylon from the Bible. Babylon was the capital city of the Babylonian Empire. And in its waning days, Cyrus the Great and his armies were defeating the Babylonian armies in the field, but the Babylonians still had their ace in the hole, which was the city of Babylon. And... This city, uh, hard to know what's fact or fiction here, but the city was huge on any scale, today's scale or in the ancient world certainly. And it had two large walls around it. And the interior wall was almost as impressive as the exterior wall. But this wall was said by Herodotus figures to be 85 feet across at the top of the wall and over 300 feet tall. And whether that's an exaggeration or not, you can imagine these walls were impressive by any, any stature, any measurement. For the Medes and the Persians, they had to defeat this city. They had to take the city if they were going to take the empire. And so as Cyrus and his generals came up, they know that the city walls and the huge bronze city gates are, are impenetrable. So they give up any thought about taking Babylon through the walls or the gates. And this is what they do. They resorted to a method that had been used on the Euphrates River before. The Euphrates River flowed right through the city of Babylon, flowed under these walls. And so Cyrus and his generals, they diverted the waters of the Euphrates River. And so the waters receded, and the soldiers on both ends of the city, where the water flowed in and where it flowed out, they walked through the muddy, now-drained riverbed into the city, and they took the city In a day, this huge, massive city, impenetrable walls, was taken because they drained the waters of the river. That's Herodotus' story. And if that's all we knew, it'd be an interesting story, it'd be a little bit of ancient history, and that'd all be good. But God gives a totally different take on the same night, same occasion, totally different take, and it's in Daniel 5. And in Daniel 5, he doesn't say anything about the walls, he doesn't say anything about how they diverted the water, because he's interested in something entirely different. But in Daniel 5, God tells us about this same night from his perspective, and this was the deal. Belshazzar, the king of of Babylon, who was either the son or the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's throwing a party. And he understands that his armies have been defeated in the field, but he thinks, hey, I'm in Babylon the Great. Nobody can touch me here. We're having our regular festival gathering. I've got my royal entourage here. I've taken the gold utensils out of the temple from Jerusalem. And I've brought them out to my feast. I'm entertaining my nobles. And we're feasting, we're eating and drinking to the gods of gold, silver, wood, and bronze. And in the midst of this party, while the armies of Medo-Persia are outside their walls, a hand comes out of a cup. You guys probably know this story and writes on the wall, the finger writes on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. 
And the guys there, they're not sure what this means, but it says Belshazzar's knees were shaking. He doesn't know what it means, but he's immediately terrified. But what are these words? What do they mean? What do we make of this? They call this aging Jewish administrator in, Daniel. And they say, hey, Daniel, tell us, what's the deal? Here are these words. What's the deal? And Daniel tells him this. He says to Belshazzar, Belshazzar, you know that your father, Nebuchadnezzar, had raised himself up in pride before Almighty God. And God had warned him. If you don't turn from your pride, I'm going to strike you down in judgment. And Belshazzar continued to elevate himself in his own mind. And sure enough, God struck him down. And if you read that passage, Nebuchadnezzar is reduced to this animal-like creature who is uh, sent away from men. All people avoid him. He's like a beast in the field. And it said, until he recognized that God rules in the affairs of men. And this was the point for Daniel. He says, Belshazzar, you knew this. You knew God's warning to your father. You knew that he warned and that he'd bring judgment if he didn't repent. And knowing all these things, this is what you've done. You've raised yourself up in pride just like him. And God has told you that he's weighed you. You've been found wanting. And he's giving your kingdom up to the Medes and the Persians tonight. And sure enough, that very night, the Medes and the Persians came in. A new kingdom began and Belshazzar lost his life that night. Totally different takes. Herodotus tells us how this occurred. And God tells us how to look at it and see what was important. Belshazzar had been warned by what God had done in the life of someone before him that God was willing to judge if we didn't repent, if Belshazzar didn't repent Belshazzar did not learn the message. We're in a passage this morning, Genesis 19. If you've got the study sheet, the whole passage is there. If not, turn into your Bible, Genesis 19. We're in a passage this morning that is meant to be a reminder and an example to all of mankind since this occurred that God must judge wickedness. Can't do otherwise. Genesis 19. If you remember in Genesis 18, two angels in the Lord had appeared to Abraham. Abraham had entertained them, had a meal. They gave him some good news about a son. And God had sent the angels to the city of Sodom to see if the outcry of the city was really true to fact. Was Sodom really as bad as its outcry? And we pick up there this morning. Guys, this is the longest passage I think I've ever taught through. 29 verses. I normally, I like to do one verse, a couple, two or three. This is a story. We're doing it all together. So forgive me. Hang in there as we read through this. Put your thinking caps on or whatever it takes and we'll draw a few points out and I promise to do my best to stay within my time frame here. Okay, Genesis 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night, wash your feet Then you can rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we'll spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them, and he baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot, and they said to him, 
Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, Please, my brothers, don't act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, whom else have you here? A son-in-law, sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcries become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. And he said, up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought him outside, one said, Escape for your life. Don't look behind you and don't stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to him, Oh, no, my Lord. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You've magnified your loving kindness, which you've shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it's small. Please let me escape there. Isn't it small? That my life may be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. But hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar, or small town. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he saw and behold the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Long passage, three points. First one is this. Just looking at Lot and his family, I hope you noticed, if you remember Genesis 18, that Lot 
is intentionally meant to resemble Uncle Abraham in this passage. Genesis 18, verses 1 through 8, and the opening portion of Genesis 19 here. Remember this. Abraham's encounter with the Lord and the two angels compared with Lot's. So, Lot is sitting at the gate of the city, just like Abraham was sitting in the door of his tent. Lot sees the men, he gets up to meet them, and he bows down to them. Abraham saw the men, he ran from the tent to meet them, and he bowed down to the earth. Lot volunteers to wash their feet. Abraham volunteers to wash the visitor's feet as well. And Lot prepares a meal for his guests, just as Abraham had served his guests a feast. Just like, it's so intentional, it's clear that we're supposed to see Lot looks just like Uncle Abraham here. If you go down to verses 18 through 22, you see more of the same, more minor note. There Lot pleads that a city be spared, just as Abraham had pled that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah would be spared as well. So you got this very intentional comparison, positive comparison of Lot with faithful, righteous Uncle Abraham. This is a good thing. Later, not in context here, but I do want to point out 2 Peter 2, three times in that context, we'll look at this passage just a little later. Three times in that context, God calls Lot righteous. So just like Uncle Abraham, who was righteous, you remember Genesis 15, 6, Lot apparently also had trusted God and God's promises and was declared righteous. We know this is imputed righteousness because when you look at Lot's life, this clearly is not an earned righteousness, but called righteous three times in 2 Peter. So there's this clear comparison, all favorable. Lot looks a lot like Uncle Abraham, behaves like him, pleads like him, all positive. But there's another side to Lot in this story too, isn't there? So look at verse 8. I hope that any time you read this story, I hope you feel like somebody slaps you in the face when you read this. We should be insulted. We, this is abhorrent. So here's righteous Lot that looks a lot like Uncle Abraham saying to this vile, violent mob crowd, by the way, in which his daughter's future husbands are. They're in this crowd. He says, hey, rather than harm my guests, just take my daughters and do whatever you want to with them. What, is it, what do you think had happened to Lot's judgment? He's been living in Sodom for a while. What's happened to his judgment? Remember, in the, in the ancient East, this is still somewhat true today, if you brought a stranger under your roof, you were responsible for their safety. And so Lot understands, I can't let anything happen to these guests. And yet somehow he thinks that he can offer up his daughters, virgin daughters, young daughters he's raised, and give them sort of as meat to be fed to these wild beasts. This is depraved. I mean, don't read this and think that it's anything less than that. It's depraved. It's warped and twisted. And this is Lot's judgment. This is what I'll do. This is my solution to the problem. I'll just throw my daughters to the wolves. He has lost the ability to judge and to know what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. He is checked out. Morally, he doesn't know now what's up from down or right from wrong, that he could do this. 
Look at verse 26 also. That's Lot. Lot's wife. You know, there are pillars, salt pillars in this area down around the Dead Sea that people still will take pictures of and say, there's Lot's wife. You know, the angels had said, when you guys flee, do not look back. And so we read the story and we say, she broke that little rule. She looked back. And God turned her into a pillar of salt. She was ripped off. Look how bad Lot is. She just looked back. What's the deal? In the Hebrew, looked back, nebat, means to look intently. And the implication is it's to regard something with pleasure, favor, or care. Now, we don't know much about Lot's wife. And she might have been from Sodom. She might have been a Canaan. We don't know where she came from. But when they're fleeing the city of destruction, when his wife looks back, it's not just that she looked at the city. We're to understand that she's looking at the place she longs to stay. That her heart and her soul were still in this most wicked of cities, Sodom. So that even though she escapes the judgment fire, she's still judged in this being turned into a pillar of salt. Salt was oftentimes a picture of judgment in the Old Testament, just as fire is. But Lot's wife, he loses his wife because her heart and her soul still reside in Sodom. And so she incurs a similar, a little different, but similar fate as those in the city itself. And then last, we didn't read it this morning. We will the next time we're in Genesis. Verses 30 and 38, I'll just point out. When Lot and his daughters flee, just as Noah had become drunk after he's delivered through the flood, Lot is intoxicated intentionally by his daughters two nights in a row. The daughters fear that they won't have anyone to marry. They don't want to be left without children. So they get their father drunk. They sleep with him one after the other, whereby they get their children. So Lot and his daughters now have escaped the city. And you see the kind of immorality that was part of Sodom is now present in his own family. And trouble comes from this, which we'll look at later. So here's Lot and his family. Favorable comparison to Abraham. Declared righteous three times in Second Peter. And yet this is the degree to which he has fallen. Bruce Waltke in his commentary writes this. He said, Lot tries to be a blessing, but instead appears as a bungler and a buffoon. He fails as a host, as a citizen, as a father, as a husband. He wants to protect his guests, but needs to be protected by them. He tries to save his family, and they think he's joking. Afraid to journey to the mountains, he pleads for a little town, but afraid of the town, he flees to the mountains. His salvation depends on God's mercy and Abraham's blessing. So on one hand in this story, you've got this favorable comparison of Lot to Uncle Abraham, faithful, righteous Abraham. And on the other, you see... Lot has become this distorted and twisted and diminished version, not only of Uncle Abraham, but of whom Lot was called to be as well. Righteous on one hand, and yet severely distorted and fallen on the other. And you know, the trouble with living in Sodom is that you become like the Sodomites. And that's what had happened to Lot. He didn't take into account things that David wrote a thousand years later, granted. But the principle, Psalm 1, David says, don't walk in the way of the wicked and don't stand 
in the way of sinners and don't sit in the seat of unbelieving scoffers. Avoid certain kinds of people because you'll become like them. And Lot became this diminished version of himself and of his uncle because he became like the people he was associated with. And one of the lessons for us today is certainly this. You've got to be so careful where you hang your hat and where you live, where you hang out. Not necessarily the physical location of your house, though, though that could be part of it. Who are the people who are influencing you? And whether if you're an adult, just who are your friends? Who are you hanging out with? Where do you spend your time? And what is their influence on you? To what end are you being shaped by the people who influence you? If you're a parent, by the way, still raising your children, this is huge. Lot didn't just suffer. He loses everything, by the way, of course, in this story. He loses everything. He was a wealthy man. He's reduced to nothing. His family, materially, spiritually. So Lot lost, but his family lost too. If you're a parent raising your children, who they're hanging out with, who their influences are, is huge. It's formative. And you can't afford to think that it's just okay whoever your kids are with or whatever they're doing or wherever they're at. It's, it's not okay. Because your, your children, just as Lot's daughters, were brought down by their life and saw, and your kids and my kids will be too. And kids, when you're choosing friends, let me encourage you to aim high. That is to choose friends that are going to help you become your best self, not your worst. They're going to challenge you to live up and not down. This is huge. So Lot had started out a wealthy guy. He's reduced to nothing through his time in Sodom. We taught on this Genesis 13, 1 through 13, specifically talking about a lot of Lot and his choice. And you can go to that January 31st on the website if you choose to. It's so important who is influencing us, where and with whom we are living out our life. Well, look at the second group in this story, and that's the people of Sodom. If you remember back in Genesis 13, 13, when we heard about this city, Lot chose the well-watered valley of the Jordan down there where Sodom was. And we were told there, the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. That's how God defined it when he's just mentioning the direction Lot is choosing to go. But look here in verse 4. You remember the angels went down to verify that things in Sodom really were as bad as the outcry of the city? And so in verse 4 it says, All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. All the men, every part of the city, young and old. We understand these guys aren't the exception in Sodom. They're the rule. That it's not just there's a few bad eggs in Sodom. It's the whole town. So that when God's bringing judgment, He's not judging the righteous with the wicked. The whole place is corrupt. Look at verse 5. We typically, if we think of Sodom with anything specifically, it's normally sexual sin. Certainly there's immorality here. But there's immorality with violence also. So the men say, bring them out so that we may know them. That we may, of course in the biblical term, have this intimate Knowledge, this is a sexual term. So this isn't an invitation. These guys are saying, those two visitors, willing or not, we want them. We're going to have our way with them. 
Not an invitation, it's a demand. We're going to, uh, our desire here, this would be like some guys in prison, gang rape, two guys we've never seen, but that's, the, that's where we're going. That's, where we're, that's our desire with these guys. Violence and sexual immorality, both. Sort of to the nth degree. Then verse 9, notice, they are not open to any appeal. Lot comes out in this sort of wimpy way, doesn't he? Brothers, friends, you know, countrymen. Let's not do this thing. They are not open to the most reasonable of appeals. Don't talk to us. You know, this guy who came in and now he thinks he's better than us, he's telling us how to live. Don't talk to us. They were beyond any appeal to mitigate their evil. Beyond any appeal. And the last, they had lost the ability to perceive truth. Uh, This phrase, when Lot goes out and says to the fellows that are engaged to his daughters, get out of the city, it's going to be destroyed. And it says, their response is, they thought he was joking. It's Saturday Night Live. It's a joke. He's just joking. They had no ability to perceive the reality of their situation, the awful danger they were in. If you read, we won't read these this morning, I would just reference them for you. Romans 1, 18 through 32. These are on your study sheet. And Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Both of these passages describe the dynamics when we turn away from the truth. It begins this downward spiral where we become dull and, and Ephesians 4 is calloused to the truth. We lose the ability to have sensitivity to what's right and wrong. Our judgments get so skewed that we don't recognize light from darkness. What's evil from what's appropriate. We grow hard and calloused. We can't see light for dark. And that's exactly what you see here. So that even though they're facing their imminent death, When they're warned about it, sounds like a bad joke. No ability to perceive truth. This would be true for us too. Um, Sometimes Christians are eventually are caught in a certain kind of sin. Let's say it could be financial, could be uh, moral, sexual, uh, could be a number of things. And you say to yourself, "How'd they ever get there? You know, how could they have done this?" And generally, it's This kind of a process where you make one choice after another to turn from what you know is true and to do something you know you shouldn't. And we grow a little bit hard and callous with each one of those decisions until we're so dull that we can't make the right kinds of decisions anymore. We don't recognize them anymore. Think of someone who abuses alcohol regularly. They drink and they drive. And you know, if their family and friends are aware of it, they warn them, don't they? Hey, you shouldn't do that. You know, you're going to get into trouble. You're going to hurt yourself or you're going to hurt someone else. But what happens when they start drinking past the point of intoxication again? There's no, there's, they can't receive truth. They don't know reality anymore. They think they're good to go. They climb in the car. They drive down the street until they wreck into the pole or wreck into someone else. And the judgment, if you will, the damage, the destruction that occurs, it's right on them. There's no going back. But if you talk to them before, everything's okay. There's no perception of reality. And that's exactly what you see here 
with the men of Sodom. Grossly immoral, violent, spiritually and morally dull, unable any longer to determine right or wrong or see the danger that's right in front of them. The last point that I want to make from this passage is that Sodom is meant to exist through history as an enduring example in a couple different ways. One is this. If you do a word study on Sodom, you'll see, I think it's used just under 50 times in the Scriptures. And it becomes the the marker, if you will, for wickedness or evil. So that when God wants to say somebody or some place is really wicked or evil, He compares them to Sodom. And it also becomes that reminder that God must judge the unrighteous and will save the righteous. Those two things, it's meant to be an example, an enduring example of both. A couple brief examples. Jeremiah 23, 14. God is speaking to His own people. This is to the southern nation of Judah. Right before God judges them through Nebuchadnezzar, that king of Babylon. But God says there, no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants are like Gomorrah. So when God wants to indict his own people, he says they're like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's become the standard for wickedness and evil. Or later in Jeremiah 49 verse 18, God is speaking there about the nation of Edom just to the east of Israel. But he says there, it will be like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, says the Lord. No one will live there, nor will a son of man reside in it. In other words, when God wants to say someone's really wicked, it's Sodom. When he says someone's judgment is going to be severe, it's Sodom. Sodom becomes the example for both. Let me leave you with one more. Excuse me also. This is so different. Luke 17 Verses 28 through 30. Jesus is talking about his second coming. And what will things be like? And the events around the second coming, what will that look like? And so he says there in Luke 17, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now, isn't it interesting? In Luke, Jesus says nothing about gross immorality. He says nothing about violence, nothing about this outcry. He's speaking to a religious group. And they probably wouldn't have identified with those elements of Sodom. But this is what he does say. He says, you know what? They were so busy with life that they lived and acted as if God didn't exist. And if He did, He didn't matter. And that's what it will be like when I come back. And you remember the scenes of the return of Jesus Christ to the earth, Second Thessalonians 1, or the book of Revelation. It's a violent time of judgment on the earth. Jesus brings a rod of iron. You know, the Lamb of God becomes the Lion of Judah. The lamb that was slain comes back as the lion with the rod of iron. So it's a period of intense judgment. And he doesn't say there it's immorality and violence. He says, no, it's people living as if I don't exist. Or if I do, I simply don't matter. 
So even in the, New, in the New Testament, not talking about the grosser elements we think of with Sodom, Jesus still holds them up as that example of wickedness and of judgment. Think of this. God gives us examples so that we remember things. And here is Sodom. God's going to judge those he calls wicked. He's going to save those he calls righteous. And 2 Peter 2, verses 6 through 9, this is what we referenced earlier, is sort of the, the summation of this. Peter, near the end of his, his life, writes this. Speaking of this context of judgment and wickedness, he says, If God, if He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example, they're supposed to be an example, to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. This is the conclusion. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the righteous under punishment for the day of punishment. So here's Lot. Lot warned his future sons-in-law of their impending death. They thought he was joking, and they perished in the destruction of Sodom. Lot and his daughters are spared. If you go back to another story that's meant to act as an example, for 120 years, Noah built an ark, built a boat that no one else thought would ever be needed. And everyone else perished in the flood, but Noah and his family lived through to see the dawn of a new day and a new age. And Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, had a living example in his lifetime of giving God his due, of not raising himself up in pride. And it's exactly what he did, in spite of the example in front of him. And he and his kingdom are lost that night. He loses his life. And yet there's Daniel, who lives through to see another kingdom Yet again, God judged the wicked, but spared the righteous. And let me close with this. These really are meant to be examples for us and for the people before us since this event. This would be around 2000 BC in round numbers. So for the last thousands of years, God has meant for the flood in Noah's day and for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and for the destruction of the the Babylonian Empire and Belshazzar, he has meant those things to be living reminders to us that he must judge wickedness. He delivers the righteous. Ultimately, though, these reminders, these examples, pale in significance to Jesus Christ on the cross. And just think of this for just a second. We really live in an unbelieving age. And I think, guys, one of the the markers of our culture is that if you talk to someone seriously about judgment and hell, they think it's a bad joke. In our culture today, they think it's a bad joke. The reality, though, of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the one that the Father loves above all else, if God poured out the wrath of heaven on Jesus while he was on the cross... What twisted logic would make us think that he would not pour out his wrath on those who raise their fist to him and reject the provision he's made in Christ? Do you know what I mean? Does that comparison, does that sound clear? 
God pours out his wrath on his only begotten son, the son of his love. So he can save us. And if we reject that salvation, that deliverance, what is left for us? You know, nothing. God will judge, he must judge. Jesus on the cross is the evidence of that. That God will save us and declare us righteous is Jesus on the cross as well. But since Noah and since Sodom and since Belshazzar, the world is without excuse as far as God is concerned about God's necessity in judging the wicked, his willingness to save and make us righteous because those were meant to be living examples for us. And they're there to this day. When we present... Christ to the world around us. Don't be afraid of people scoffing or taking you lightly like his sons-in-law did. We still are called to present the truth. Just like those angels in Sodom, we're supposed to be here in a world that's headed for destruction. No kidding. We're supposed to be here as agents of warning. And if some scoff, that's okay. Some will be saved and some will believe. And God is still using the message of his son to convict people of their need and to bring them out of darkness and into light. And we can't be embarrassed by that. And mockers and scoffing and dullness aside, we're still called just like these angels to be agents of warning to the world around us. God help us to be that and to do that. Father, we are without excuse. We have a conscience you've given us to declare right and wrong. Lord, we sin against that. We sin against your righteous judgments. Lord, the culture we're in does the same. The world we're in, all of us, James says in many ways, sin and fall short. Lord, thank God that you sent Jesus to die for our sins. And Lord, would you help us to be so convinced of the truth of that, so thankful for what you've done for us, and so in love with your Son that without apology and without embarrassment, like those angels in Sodom, Lord, we declare words of sober truth to the world around us and warn those around us for the love of Christ and for the love of them, of the destruction that lies ahead, Lord. Help us to live soberly and righteously, Lord, in this present age and help us to reach out to those who are living in present-day Sodom, Lord. Thanks for your desire to bless and to save. In Jesus' name, amen.